Good morning, and welcome to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us in ways that get us thinking, get us talking, get us imagining, get us get us connected. And we're continuing uh, a in part two of a conversation with our storyteller, Lauren Nimi. Uh, so our topic today is a continuation of the power of story, how it reveals what matters, and how it connects us to ourselves and others. And my co-host, Rick Bernardo, who is an ethicist, a teacher, an advocate, a writer, a musician, a comedian, uh, who looks for connections and explores ways of living grounded in ethics, brought Lauren to both shows today. And I would love to have you share your story that you were sharing with me earlier about your experience of working at Heart of the Beast. Oh, yeah. It's a vivid memories and um – Hi, Lauren. Hi, Hi Rick. <laughs> he, he, he's here just to have evidence. Uh, he's a poet and author and professional storyteller and a consultant. Uh, and, and I met Lauren in one of those – well, we, you wear so many hats and so many positions and offices and so forth. And in the Heart of the Beast, I was working there Lauren, uh, with Lauren as – he was the executive director. And I just remember walking into this theater building, which is uh, – like an archival building itself in Minneapolis and in the heart of the beast is puppet storytelling theater i mean their job is really to just breathe life into stories and and, and for those that have may have missed seeing some of the marvelous work of heart of the beast these yeah. are huge well, puppets there's tiny ones and big ones big yeah. ones would be like like uh, as big as a small building so, <laughs> uh, and and, and so they find a way to move those and i didn't know until i started working there that a lot of special effects in movies and films and television are are actually it's, it's a form of puppetry. It's not all digital. They have to have actual interactions with all other alive creatures. And so I, you enter this building that has uh, the 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 beginnings and and stationary waypoints for these beings. And so I would walk into work past. Uh, 10 to 12 foot tall elders of different cultures looking down on me and uh, walk past a pile of what's a whole pile of there must be 57 wings in that pile <laughs> and they are what and I asked somebody I said oh those are the swans they're migrating <laughs> in other words they had to be put in storage but uh, so anyway uh, and I felt like this is some sort of other fantasy Disney worldish kind of job location but even more cool than Disney yeah yeah it was well yeah because it was in the heart of the beast <laughs> so uh, and then and I'm still getting my head and heart around that name uh, which is a, a, a magical name and has so many depths anyway Lauren you may remember some of that but <laughs> but it was just vivid for me and uh, yeah yeah hi again hi how, again how did you come to work at heart of the beast um, so the first time I worked at I worked at heart of the beast twice so the first time I worked was uh, in relationship to the – I have to start one step back. Uh, I have to start with the gathering at um, Gustavus Adolphus College at St. Peter 
which was a gathering of radical theater communities and storytellers. And at that at that event, um, I spent some had a time spending some time with Sandy Spieler, and she began talking about this mad dream she had <laughs> of doing the history of the Mississippi River and taking it from the headwaters to New Orleans. And I said to her, "If you're really serious about that, I'd be interested in participating." And so uh, a year or two later, she came back to me and she said, "I'm interested. And are you interested?" And I became the ringmaster and tour manager for that for that adventure, which was to take the history of the Mississippi River as a puppet spectacle from the headwaters to New Orleans. Six months, 23 cities. Oh, my gosh. A crew of 28 you know, people ranging in age from about 46 down to two months or three months. You know. So would you perform in parks? Would you perform we would, in stages? We Well, mostly we would had a ring that we could set up. So mostly we performed in parks or parking lots or, you know. And there's many, many stories about that tour. Um, far too many to go into. That rabbit hole is, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll skip right at the moment. <laughs> but, but, but it is all part of – your right. in terms of your life story. Oh yeah, and your life story is is chronicled in prayer of poetry in your newest book. Right. Yes, it is. Those uh, the, the that material, the heart of the beast material, does not appear in the, in the bravery of for the lost. That's a, that's another whole book <laughs> <laughs> coming soon imagine. to a neighborhood yeah, right, coming, near right, you. Exactly. But the the poems that that you shared in your in our last interview. And that we're encouraging you to share in this interview as well um, comes from your new book that right. is available on Amazon. That yep. we're encouraging folks to um, to get get the breviary for the lost. Uh, yep. You can go to Amazon. It's also it's poems from the during and after. Uh, and and we talked a little bit about it in the last uh, radio interview where we talked about poem as a prayer and it it. It does give sort of a trajectory of your spiritual journey, wouldn't you say? I yes, it does. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the the whole first half of the book is the seven years I was in the religious life, and then the second half of the book is sort of what the echoes of those are, what the aftermath is mm-hmm. afterwards. So, and you have a poem for us. I do have a poem. Um, uh, I think I want to read. I want to start with. Uh, with uh, with Brother S. Charles. Oh, good. Pointing at the bones of something, a fox perhaps or a large cat, he said, form follows function. Look at the length of the leg bone, the curve of the joint, the spine, the whole bred to hunt, long strides, lithe, then swivel, turn. I could imagine that, but not until I let go of the beauty of the bones themselves. The ankle bone connected to the leg bone, the leg bone connected to the knee bone, the knee bone connected to the thigh bone, like sculpted alabaster saying, pick me up, make a flute that I might howl again, or a beater upon a stretched skin replicating my pulsing heart, my footfall through the forest, that I may live after living, as does all we eat, one spirit feeding another. One flesh given over to satisfy another whose hunger is unbated. I love it. I love it also because in our last interview we were talking about how high I needed to look up what breviary right. was. Um, and in the 
the wisdom of Google, uh, it shared with me that it it really was a, a book containing daily psalms, hymns, prayers, lessons, and, and it, it included – it was necessary for reciting. So there was something about the spokenness of it that I, I, I was interested in. And then they give this little, exa- a, a little example um, where it, it, it talks about he was a man who collected bones and breveries. Right. And I was wondering, wow. <laughs> That's an interesting collection. <laughs> so <laughs> and and then you shared that you had this this home. So I, I feel like I, I understand bones better in the breviary. Yes. Yes. The bone is was contained in breviary. Yes. Okay. Well you know I mean again it is the function of a breviary is to is to connect you throughout the course of the day to um, either the communal spirituality or to your individual spirituality. So, you know. When you were drawn to go into um, the, to go into to follow your faith and be and go into you you went you became a priest, a Christian brother, a Christian uh, brother, which is that they're a religious teaching order, but not priests. Okay, hmm. I always make that distinction. <laughs> and what's the difference? Um, whether or not one can – essentially whether or not one can offer the sacraments. So priests are consecrated for the sacraments. Uh, lay teaching orders, uh, uh, canonical orders that are religious but not priests. You know, we don't do the sacraments. We do what is generally considered to be you know, charitable work or you know, the healing of the body politic. There's a lot of sisters and a lot of brothers. Right. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. yeah, there are, there are many, <laughs> and orders that right. that are committed to right. a specific feeding the poor. Right, they're yeah. teaching yeah. different things. Actually, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, these days it's like you, there aren't very many orders coming into existence. But if you thought about it a little bit, you know, in essence, the Catholic worker would be an example of a new religious order. In the, within mm-hmm. the Catholic tradition. Interesting. Good example. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to um, go to an, uh, we're going to go to break. I'm going to go to break a little bit early um, because I want a little bit more time in the next segment. And in the next segment, I want to talk about how you teach story um, and what what you offer in teaching story and what the essence that you find of story is and then share your next poem. Um, okay. This is our poetry hour uh, mm-hmm. and I'm delighted <laughs> to have Laura Nimi share mm-hmm. his poetry and give us insight about his poetry. So thanks for joining us uh, for our, our first segment with Lauren. There's a lot of good things coming uh, and we'll be right back after a few short commercials. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and our topic today is on stories, how they can connect us, and how they can give us, reveal who we are. And I have my co-host, Rick Bernardo, who is an ethicist and a comedian and a musician and a teacher and all kinds of good things. And you brought your guest, Lauren Nimi. I'm trying to be good things. And yes, Lauren Nimi and I worked for uh, some years at, in the Heart of the Beast. But uh, 
I keep learning about his background as a poet, an author, professional storyteller, and a professional and organizational consultant. And, and uh, an author. That too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a polymath, which is not always about math for no. some reason, but it's, it means a rich and varied life. So hi, Lauren. Hello. Hi, Lauren Nimi, and he's got his, his new book of poems, A Breviary for the Lost. Uh, just out, and you can find that on Amazon. And uh, we want to highlight that as well as Lauren's American School, American of, School Story- of Storytelling, of storytelling, which is just that website, AmericanSchoolOfStorytelling.com. Mm-hmm. And I like what Amazon says about your book. What is prayer if not the acknowledgement of one's relationship to the di- to the divine? What is poetry if not kind of a prayer? that rises from the heart in image and metaphor? What is a book if not the poems offered up as testimony to the author's relationship to the divine? From his entry into religious life in 1965 to the 2020s pandemic pause, these are intimate prayers, images of life lived in times of transition, and metaphors of how one understands what it means to be human. Yeah. Did you write that? <laughs> did you write that or did they? I do believe I wrote that. Okay. So you, you have to explain these things. Yes. You know. yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, it's a logic model. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. That allowed you to, to arrive. That's right. But why don't you go ahead and read a poem? All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose this one. Reading a Borrowed Book. The scribble in the margin says, Our task is to transform human beings to liberate us from our own stupidity. And curious as it is, true as it might be, what gives me pause is a single sentence highlighted in yellow. Memories held too dear will devour their host. While outside, a crow stretches its wings in the late summer sun, calls out as if to ask, how dear must our memories be to begin the self-cannibalizing feast? Mm. My childhood is imagined like that told by cousins and siblings of the uncles who let us sip homemade wine at supper or the aunts who deliberately left packs of cigarettes where the curious might find them, a past true and not according to who tells it. I pick up the pen, add two exclamation points next to the accusing margin note. And all this was written in the margin. <laughs> well, the the highlighted was in the text of the borrowed book. The what was in the margin was the our task is to transform human beings to liberate us from our stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and is that the the role of education? Are we stupid, or are or are we? Do we have an essence that that comes forth with a crow that allows us to figure things out? Well. My own feeling is, is that stupidity is a is a cultural concept, mm-hmm. and it's a collective concept. So, as an example, um, if we think about school, school isn't about individual uh, imagination or or skill. It's about how to arrive at a collective, mm-hmm. <laughs> how to memorize and be able to 
pick which A, B, C, or D best fits into that puzzle piece of what you right. were taught. Or, or how to be, you know, how to be a good worker, how to be a good consumer. And, and a lot of the education does seem to be based from the industrial era of, you know, how could we get a lot of people to work right. and memorize things and do things that were important to to give yeah. back. Yeah. There's different skills and that's really different than inher- inherent intelligence. Those are right. different, right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, someone someone I I don't remember who said you know, we're born geniuses and then we're educated out of it. <laughs> I think that there's a truth to that. But along with that, you brought up, you know, the wonderful family, you know, the, that you set, sipped wine at the table and ants that left a little, you know, cigarette pack over there for you to, you know. So there, there's something about the living in that poem yes, too. Yes, yes. Well, you know, my Uncle Johnny, you know, took my brother and I one day out to the back the back 40 and he says, do you know how to drive? And we said, no, we're only 11 and 12. <laughs> to see our size? And he says, all right, well, I'm going to teach you. And he, he takes us and he puts us behind the wheel of an army surplus dump truck <laughs> and he starts it up and he's just about to put it in gear and I and I say to him, what about the brake? He says, don't worry about that. There are plenty of trees. <laughs> Dear. Now, is this an uncle you trusted? Oh, this is my favorite uncle. Are, this is my favorite uncle. Are but your that's legs, not the same as trusted. Are, are your legs swinging on the seat at that point? No, just like I, could reach the pe- I could reach no, the pedals. Uh, so oh, so, well, so did, did you eventually figure out where the brake was? Yeah. Oh, oh but, you learned quickly. Hit a yeah. tree once and you go, oh. well, okay, we're not going to do that again. So you can reach the pedal, but you, then you can't see. How does that work? <laughs> you know. Well, he sounds like he was an adventure. And, and where was this? Where was this your? Was, this was up in Hibbing. In Hibbing. My other my other favorite story about my uncle Johnny is, I'm at my aunt Sadie's funeral, and I'm and I'm sitting across the table from Johnny, and I say, "So Johnny, other than this current unpleasantness, what else is happening?" <laughs> <laughs> Let's not quibble about who's dying. <laughs> <laughs> and and he says, "My doctor says I have to give up wine," and I go, "Johnny." You're 94 years old. What do you mean give up drinking wine? He says, oh, no, 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 not drinking wine. He says, I got to give up making wine. <laughs> oh. Now, was that your favorite uncle? That, my, that same, was my favorite uncle, Johnny. Same, yeah, so, right. so Johnny taught you how to drive and then had to give up the wine. Right, it, had to give it, up wine at 94. Oh. Yeah, and his next line was, I got three or four bottles left. He says, yeah, it should be enough. You know, He died at 97 and there were two bottles left. And me and the cousins, we drank them in his honor. So. <laughs> And that was part of the celebration. It was part of the celebration. Celebration of his life. Yeah. yeah. Do you get up to hipping and and now these days much? Not much. Not enough. Mm-hmm. You know. And the wilderness? I mean, the last time I was in Hibbing was for a funeral of a cousin. You know, it's like, you know, that sort of, those mm-hmm. sort of things happen with astounding frequency on these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weddings and funerals become Weddings and sort funerals, of the, yeah, the right. ways that the right. the whole family can right. be in contact. You know, those, where those connections are. So, Well, we're delighted to have you here to share not only your poems but context. You know, you can read a poem and you can bring your own images and we were talking about that earlier as well, how you can leave a space open for a reader to become engaged in a Mm – that you like a little bit of sparse, a little negative space in there so that they can enter in with you. Uh, And in our next segment – We'll hear more of your poems. Mm-hmm. And I'm also uh, curious about the work that you do with artists and storytellers okay. and how you help them shape uh, the stories. And that you are – one of the things I read is that you're a good listener. You listen for what 
what that story is to help them shape it. Uh, of what it can be. So stay with us because my guess is everyone out there has a story and it's nice to hear stories and then think about your own. And I know in a storytelling, um, your storytelling association, uh, you'll be teaching folks how to perhaps capture the stories of their family. Yep. So we'll be right back. Stay tuned here on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and I have Rick Bernardo as my co-host today, who has brought a wonderful guest. I did. Yes. And not to brag, but I, uh, he, he was willing to come. And uh, <laughs> he's Lauren Nimi, and he's a poet, an author, professional and organizational consultant, and a professional storyteller. So you can check out his... Uh, American School of Storytelling at AmericanSchoolOfStorytelling.com. And uh, he and I met in in the Heart of the Beast Theater, where that is a theater that brings to life stories (laughs) through magical puppetry and so forth. So um, I keep being struck in these poems from A Brevery for the Lost. That's his new book. That you can get on Amazon. Exactly. (laughs) exactly. Uh, uh, On the power of stories. Uh, sometimes spoken and sometimes not spoken. And Lauren has a vast history in bringing that out of the woodwork, being more conscious of what the story could be. There's a a, a person I worked with years ago in public health named um, David Walsh who said, the stories we tell define our culture. And that is so powerful. And we don't always tell the stories deliberately. They're sometimes just in the background. And my question is always for my personal life and our communities, are we telling the story? Are we running that narrative or is it running us mm-hmm. unwillingly somehow? Mm-hmm. And that, that does a big difference. But Lauren, uh, can you say a little more about the, your, your work in, with other storytellers in that vein? Well, you know, uh, over the years – I've gotten very interested in the – literally in the structuring of stories. So I wrote a book called The New Book of Plots, which goes through 10 different narrative platforms. And I um, – what are their positives? What are their negatives? How to use them? When to use them? And then after that, I wrote a book uh, with Nancy Donoville called um, you know, Point of View and the Emotional Arc of Stories. Between those two books, which – which I think of as companions, basically it encompasses the 26 years I spent teaching storytelling at Metro State University. Um, and I've over those years, I've you know, part of working with people has been, yes, you have a story. Yes, you want to tell it. What is the choices? Uh, what are the choices? You know, which choices produce what kinds of effects in terms of you being able to tell it comfortably and an audience being able to hear it comfortably. Mm -hmm. What you say is not what they hear necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily, right? Yeah. And so so you've got got programs. You've got plot mapping the territory and that relates back to – and how many – you said you have 10 plots that – there are, yeah, there are ten platforms that are, mm-hmm. you know, some are very common. Uh, you know, the revelation plot. You know, the flashback, the mm-hmm. the parallel plot form. These are all very common forms. Mm-hmm. Some are more obscure. Things like mirror f- forms, or uh, one of my one of my favorites to deal with difficult material, the list story. Mm-hmm. You know, where 
you're not really obligated for a, a coherent narrative, but rather for what is the association of various parts of the story to itself and to each other. So kind of like a prism reflecting yeah, back and forth right, on exactly. each other. Yeah, right. And then the emotional arc, you mentioned that too, and that's something that you teach. Right. I, yeah. The emotional when – I, whenever I talk about the emotional arc of stories, I'm actually talking – there are three different arcs. Mm-hmm. There's the arc of the characters in the story. What do they feel and what mm-hmm. do they do? There's the arc of the narrator, which is the one which – where people get in trouble. Yeah. It's like when you go to tell a personal story about yourself – as the narrator, what is your feeling about you in the story? Is it one of compassion? Is it like how stupid was I? Is uh-huh. it Was it a ridicule of yourself at that point right. or was it a revelatory is I discovered it, this? It, right, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. and how, you know, that that arc is a really critical arc. And then there's the arc of the audience, and that's the one you have no control over. You know, except you know, it's like. But you hope to make an impact. I mean, right, that that, right. that, that the, that's the whole point, right? right. <laughs> the, the, yeah, for the emotional arc for the audience is to make the invite them in, and to reassure them at the end that they're still good. Yeah. <laughs> now, is there when you're the storyteller, can you arc too soon in your own telling that then impacts how the the audience would receive it? And the answer is yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can. Yeah. You know, I mean it. Just as it's there's a great joy in telling a, a good story, it's also very possible to tell a terrible story. <laughs> yes. mm. Let me let me uh, let me do you a poem here for you I'd that love it. that speaks to that. Oh, good. What it's like, she said to me, "Death is a slow, seemingly inert predator, always just out of view, even when you know it's close, until it's too late." And then all that's left is the shock of after. It reminded me of an old Sufi story of a dervish on a boat in a storm, sleeping as passengers panic. Finally, the storm passes. The boat arrives at harbor. As he steps on shore, someone says to him how remarkable it was that he had remained calm when there was only a plank between them and death. He replies, yes, but now even the plank is gone. <laughs> the great unknown. <laughs> At least there was a knowingness with a plank. <laughs> wow. So tell me about that. Well, I, 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 I love that the story, you know, uh-huh. because on the one hand, you also get the echo of Jesus on the water, uh-huh. right, with the boat and the storm, um, you know. Yeah. But, but the idea that, you know, to be in the present, mm-hmm. you know, to to say okay, um, again referring to the earlier an earlier poem, right? It is what it is. So let us you know let us acknowledge that um, you know, and, and 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 relive the moment. Yeah, and relive the moment, and have that. You can be present, but still bring that moment to life. Yep, yep, exactly. What what do storytellers most struggle with in 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 being able to share that? What most storytellers struggle with is is the the fundamental decision to tell. It's like, is this story worth telling? You know, um, how do we move something from being incidental or or or, or like sort of offhanded into being crafted and to being mm-hmm. purposeful? And this applies f- for traditional stories as well as for personal stories. You know, it's like if you go to tell a personal a traditional story. What is the basis of that choice? Why are mm-hmm. you telling it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
What's underneath? What's underneath? I mean, you have to have some connection to the story yourself before you tell it, mm-hmm. before you decide to tell it. Otherwise, it just kind of flits in and out. So, And so often, you know, you, people go to those speech classes and they become formulaic in how – you know, something mm-hmm. is told, and they think that's what you're supposed to do. Right. And, and to me, it's much more real and much more impactful when it's it it has some imperfections in it as well. Yeah. There's there's some echo of the question of authenticity in that for me. In other words, whenever I mean, we're always telling stories in our personal lives, and especially people like me who goof around a lot. But the goofing is sometimes intentional in the sense of. Um, it's not worth me telling a story unless I fess up to something generally, unless I, I reveal something about myself that I didn't share before. There's – if I don't do that, somehow it's not it, – it doesn't land – like it's, it lands as more like so. So is that a confessional plot line or is that the arc, the emotional arc of the storytelling? That's, that's really more the emotional arc. The, mm-hmm. you know, the, the narrative plot line is designed to get you from the beginning to the end. And in and of itself, it does not have a lot of uh, judgment attached to it other than which, what things fit or what is, what is the order of progression. You know. But the emotional arc of a story, the, the detailing of the story, that's where we wind up you know, um, coming to understand meaning. Mm-hmm. So, for ourselves in telling the story? For, our, for ourselves first of all and then for an audience. And oftentimes an audience – the objective of a story is to have, an, uh, have it mean something to the audience. But there's never any guarantee of that and so – and there's never a guarantee that they'll get it then. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that people – I find has to happen is that a lot of times storytellers think that the story doesn't change. But in fact, it does change. You change. Because you change, because the, how the story changes or what it means to you will change over years. And if you try to hold on to those original set of words, you're in trouble because to really – You're in a different place of the river. It's yeah, kind of exactly. a lot. It's alive. I mean once you start telling a story, it's like stepping into a living thing. I, I mean that's my experience. Oh, anyway. yeah. So tell me when you go to the Fringe and you, you have a story that you're going to be going to several different Fringe festivals. Right. And of course the audience impacts it as well. Right. You know, your story changes because there's different energy in the room and reactions to what you've told. Does it, does it feel very different oh, going yeah. from one story to the – even though it's the same plot oh, yeah. and, and, oh, yeah. and you are so, – lo- go for it. So um, a number of years ago, uh, there's a performance I do called Fata Morgana which is a large, long story in which there are four places you can start the story. And I always let the audience choose. And for years and years and years, the audience never chose one character. And the one time the audience told, chose that character as the start, we, I wound up with a very different ending to the story. Because usually at the end of the story, one or more people needs to be dead. <laughs> but in, in the audience choosing that particular character, by the end of the story, I found a way for everyone to still be alive. The salvation. Yeah. And it was as surprising to me as it was to the audience. <laughs> what an adventure. You know, and it, it was like, yes. Oh, finally, after years, it, after years, the audience has never chosen that character again. It was a, a one-time event. Wow. Was there something special about that audience that was 
where that was. It different. was it was at the Indianapolis Fringe Festival. I don't. So know you've been. You. It's, yeah. it's not something. It was a new place. This was a place that you've been to. And, yeah, and you've but you know, stories. but it was an audience. I didn't know anybody in the audience, uh-huh. so it's like, who knows? But there was, you know, I always, I do not underestimate the idea that, you know, there is that story which wants to be told in and of itself, and you become the conveyor for it. You become the, the, you know, the mechanism. As a you know, as opposed to saying you are the creator, and you, and you were present in that moment to take that in and and be willing to explore. What, one of the uh, oh, yeah. classes that oh, yeah. that you offer is walking to find poems and stories, and it sounds like you almost were walking in that story and allowing yep. it to to take to take you where it took you. You know, I mean, what what's you know in in Fata Morgana? This is a story I've uh, the first time I ever told it was in two thousand and one. And I told it then as in 16, 15-minute segments. It was huh. like, a, you know, over over the course of a, a fringe festival. You know, and I so I've lived with it for years and years and years, and I've told it over and over again. Uh, and and although the basic narrative hasn't changed, the my relationship to the characters, my relationship to the audience and the telling of it has, you know, changed every time. So, And with that... We'll close this segment, but in our next segment, we'll come back and we'll get to hear another poem. Um, and I'm also interested in how these same strategy stories apply to your corporate coaching as okay. well and yep. where that takes us. So okay. stay with us. Uh, we'll be back just after a few good commercials that support AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And we have the progressive storyteller of Laura Neamey that will continue. Uh, And be sure to buy his book, uh, The Brevery of the Lost, For the Lost, The Brevery for the Lost. And you can get that on Amazon. Again, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we have had the privilege to have Lauren Nimi share stories with us. We've been traveling on many story paths. Uh, we've especially been looking at his book, a new book that just came out this summer, uh, Brevery for the Lost, Poems from the During and After. And you can get that on Amazon. And he's been gracious in sharing his poems and some context for us to think about, as well as in the last segment we were talking about um, the various ways that he works with storytellers and and gives classes and programs to support all of us in learning how to better tell our stories. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. And Rick Bernardo, our co-host, is the person who invited I, I, Lauren. Not to brag, but I, I know <laughs> Lauren. Yeah. Uh, and so he's a poet and author and a professional storyteller and a consultant. And I, I haven't even shared this with you, Lauren. I, I tell stories through my comedy and acting and music is all about stories mm-hmm. or a good song would be actually. And also my ethics teaching, the students, the only reason they stay in the classroom is my stories generally. And that is the best – That's to your credit. That's the, <laughs> that's the best teaching tool uh, 
that I have is uh, because there's this logic and this and that and if this and then what. Here's the language tools. But if if I don't have a story to go along with it, they have no idea what I'm talking about generally. So uh, I am fascinated in this structural consulting role that you have for not only people but corporations and organizations on how to craft stories. I'm, I'm, I'm ever a student of that too. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that when I got my Bush Fellowship in 1998, I went – I was doing research on the relationship of storytelling to community development. Mm-hmm. And and then I – it spilled over into organizational and corporate work. Um, and one of the things that became very clear is that there are four kinds of stories that appear in every organization, uh, rather – whether it's a business or whether it's a government or whether it's a neighborhood organization. And those stories are – you know the story of origins how how we came to be the the story of self how an individual you know wh- how you came to this organization or what you offer or what you do right the story of value um which is what is the work what is the nature of the work and then finally the rituals that bind us and uh, oftentimes when I'm dealing with organizations, they go, what's this ritual stuff? I go, well, how do you welcome people to the job? How do you – when pe- you know, when people <laughs> the, the, the horror story is yeah. I once did a, a consulting job where, where, with an organization that was having terrible organizational uh, culture issues. And I went in and I started interviewing them and they said, well, you know, we, we had a merger – and everyone went to the auditorium to have the new president uh, tell us how great the future was. And as we were leaving the auditorium, about a third of us got our pink slips. <gasps> oh. And I said, well, I think I know why you have an organizational culture issue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember I was in an, a, an organization where people um, had got their pink slips, obviously. But sometimes your computer would shut down. And you knew you were getting your pink slip. Right. Usually, yeah. so, right. And so it's like, oh my gosh, I can't get in. Does that mean I'm fired? So people would freak out when like little minor things would happen on their computer and start crying because they thought they had lost their job. Should you go so, to tech help or not? Today? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, really, really. Yeah. And one of the things that in that particular instance, one of the things we recommended to improve culture was I said, you have to bring people back. You have to have, give them an opportunity to say goodbye in some kind of a communal way. Yeah. And of course, that uh, that was ignored. Uh-huh. And within a, <laughs> within a year, the organization was basically sold again. Huh. <laughs> so, and they had to go through another set. And of, they went through uh, another set. Of stuff, right? Well, share share a poem. Okay. So this is a little poem. This this may or may not connect to what we just did, but that's okay. On Buddha's birthday. On Buddha's birthday, I wonder if there should be a celebration. A rice cake with a little candle, yes. Or should I sit and let the thought of the candle blow itself out? In the days of sainted Ken fight, he'd light a match and sing happy birthday. Then blow the match out and sing very softly happy death day. Oh my! <laughs> you know it does tie. <laughs> am I here? Do I celebrate, or am I gone? <laughs> and when I'm gone, uh, is it Happy Death Day? 
right. there's so much resistance to even articulating some of those words in that poem. But uh, I'm always telling people, it's, I'm not in denial. I just don't want to talk about it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, but it's true. You know, one can be acutely aware of what the situation is and go, not worth the time, not worth the the, the potential misunderstanding. <laughs> or sometimes I just can't do anything about it. Right. Next. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. Well, I do want to make sure that we end with promoting your American School of Storytelling. Yes, thank and you. And American School of Storytelling, that is the website, americanschoolofstorytelling.com. Yep. And I encourage uh, folks to take a look. There's going to be classes coming up. Uh, Lauren's going to be teaching on collecting your family history. In, in September. In September. And in then, October, there, I'm going to be doing a class on what ghost stories. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> well, and we sure hope that, that you'll consider coming back again, Lauren. It's been just a sheer joy to yeah. hear your poems and to talk about your life and the reflections. Um, we appreciate you here on Thanks. Connections Radio Show. Uh, I appreciate having been here and the interaction. Thank you. And we'll look forward to having you join us next week on Connections Radio Show. 